Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Hey, I want to remind you, tonight is our annual meeting. I hope you'll come. I'm inviting you. Join me and the rest of us. We're going to have a good time. It's, it's going to be sweet because God has just done some incredible things this year. And uh, we want to share them with you. And we want to rejoice in them together. And it's good to get together and praise the Lord for what he's done. Right? Yeah, I should see some... You're supposed to bobblehead a little. <laughs> hey, and if you have little ones, there's child programming ministries for the little ones uh, tonight. So they're all taken care of. So be here at 6 sharp. And uh, we're going to have a great evening together. We continue in Becoming the Church, Stories of the First Jesus People, our, our series out of Acts this morning, and we're in chapter 20 this morning. Um, <clears throat> I want to show you quickly... <laughs> okay, I'm not going to show you. I have a new Bible. It's, uh, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version this morning. It's not floppy and flippy like my other ones yet, so uh, I was hesitant to use it, but I'm going to use it this morning. You've got to start somewhere. So we're in Acts chapter 20, and uh, we're going to be in verses 17 through 38. 17 through 38, Paul has come to Miletus. He left Ephesus. He made a, a circuitous route. Uh, went through Macedonia and Achaia, that is, he went to Thessalonica, for example, and he went to, to uh, Corinth again, and then he went back to Troas, and he's making his way down around, but the ship doesn't stop in Ephesus, so it stops in Miletus, which is about 30 miles from Ephesus, and from what I've read and studied, it would take about three days. 30 miles isn't that far, but it was a very circuitous, difficult route. And so these elders have made about a three-day journey at Paul's request. And uh, this is all focused on that time together. Verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. 
And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you all this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will rise up men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Philip Yancey, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace?, describes his spiritual journey, his own pilgrimage. He says, I rejected the church for a time because I found so little grace there. I returned because I found grace nowhere else. When he asked strangers the question, What comes to mind when I say the words evangelical Christian? Yancey hears mostly political descriptions. Not once, he says, has he heard a description redolent of grace. Apparently that is not the aroma Christians give off in the world. By the way, that... That saddens me because uh, growing up, evangelical Christian was a precious, very sweet term to me. Evangelical standing, the word evangelical coming from the word gospel, standing for the good news of God's grace. So an evangelical Christian was a gracious Christian, someone, you know, who followed Jesus Christ lived a life centered, you know, in the reality of the good news and was aglow, so to speak, with that. That's a good thing. 
I had to look up the word redolent. It means reminiscent or fragrant. Not once has he heard description reminiscent of grace. Apparently, that is not the fragrant Christians give off in the world. That's his point. Yancey's book asks, if grace is God's love for the undeserving, then what does it look like in action? And if Christians are its sole dispensers, then how are we doing at lavishing grace on a world that knows far more of cruelty and unforgiveness than it does of mercy? We do live in a world, a world of the king of the hill, where we earn our own way, we scramble over others or anyone in our way, generally practicing ungrace. And in a world like that, the concept of grace unmerited generosity, favor, love, caring. In a world like that, grace seems so utterly out of place. I did a search. I was wondering this week. You'd think I should know something like this. I actually didn't. And so I did a search on how many times Jesus uses the word grace. Do you have any idea? I was shocked. He doesn't use grace hardly at all. In fact, only 12 times in the four Gospels combined. And the times that the word grace is actually on the lips of Jesus, like for example in what he says in Luke 6, 27 and following where he talks about what credit or what grace is it to you if you love those who love you. In other words, you know, what generosity is it that should be credited to you if you love someone who loves you first? So it's not even in the sense you would expect it. But he does talk a lot about grace. I mean, the the notion of grace, the concept of grace, especially as it's defined by our God, is bigger than we can even contain in the word. By the way, Paul uses the the word grace a hundred times in his letters. You think he saw the grace of God in Jesus Christ? It becomes the heart and soul of everything that he has to write about. But Jesus talked about grace, the pearl of great price. The king that forgave a great debt. The prodigal son. Grace, 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 grace. Each of these parables presents God's grace, a grace which has no catch, no loophole 
to disqualify us from God's love. Let that sink in. There's no hitch. Each, at its core, has an ending that's too good to be true. Or so good, it has to be true. Where else would you get it? Gordon MacDonald said, the world can do almost anything as well as or better than the church. You need not be a Christian to build houses, feed the hungry, or heal the sick. There's only one thing the world cannot do. It cannot offer grace. Where else can people go to find grace if not the church? Pretty well-known story that uh, C.S. Lewis walked into a debate and they were debating the merits of Christianity that looking for that distinctive, unique concept in Christianity that couldn't be found in part or in whole in other religions of the world. They were going round and round trying to find it. And C.S. Lewis walked in on it. He says, what's everybody arguing about? They told him, he said, oh, that's easy. Grace. God's grace. We don't just sing amazing grace. I know I have. I, I've just sung it. But I'm trying to make a point here, so don't be too particular. No, but even when we just sing it, even when we're just uh, kind of canned about it, it touches us. It is a confession of our heart. It is, in every way, a sweet, sweet sound that saves a wretch like me. I'm going to turn 60 in a couple months. You know, I'm not happy about growing old. I'm really not. I, I say this too much. I can't, sometimes when I'm not, I mean, I do, I, away from you, I sometimes say, you should not mention your age again. People are going to think you're getting a little pathological about it. I just want to make this point, though. I, I am still turned on by Jesus Christ. I am revved up. I am lit on fire by Jesus Christ. And Paul lights me up too. And it's the grace that I see. The grace I see in Jesus Christ. It validates that God loves me. His grace touches me. Yeah, you could follow me around. You could spy on me. You would see things that would not live up to Jesus Christ. There, it's true. It's true you too. But the cross tells me that I don't have to fix myself on my failings. 
He died. He loved me so that I would forget my sin and focus on his love. And his love so changes me. And even when I disappoint myself and others, it's that love that causes me to say, I blew it, I'm sorry. I care about you more than that. Love is not so hard. Grace is not so hard. We know it personally. How sweet the sound of grace that saved a wretch like me. This passage is all about grace. And this week it has just, again, it just lights my fire that Paul is all about grace. He gets it. He gets the grace of God. This guy was a Pharisee. A Pharisee. Have you met a Pharisee? Yeah. They're all over the place. Sour, bitter, stuck-up people who think they're always right and you're always wrong. They've always got an opinion on how this world should be run. If they were president or if they were God, everything would be fixed. Pharisees. Maybe sometimes you see yourself in the mirror playing a Pharisee. And he's a changed man. You'll see it right here in this passage. He's different because of the grace of God. And that's what we see here. Look at verse 21. Let me read the whole verse, but I hope you'll catch. And these are just those jewels. I mean, the whole crown is of grace, but these are just some of the jewels that that pointed out to us. Verse 21. He says, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Right there at the end of verse 22, turning in repentance to God and having faith in Jesus Christ. He so lived, and I didn't give the whole description, his whole approach to them, everything he did, even in the little things, you know? I mean, he came to them as a servant. The very disposition of a servant. Where'd that come from? This Pharisee now coming in a lowly disposition, an attitude of humility, urging pleading, pressing them with tears, he says. And all for what? Not that you should follow me, not that you should elevate me, but that you should turn to God. Not a one-time thing, but this is a practice of your life, that you turn and depend on him and have faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the door to God. This is a Pharisaic Jew who's now saying, your way to God is not the law. You just turn to him. Turn from the world. That's the whole notion of repentance. Turn to him. That's his grace. Grace, 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 grace. Turn to him. And have faith in Jesus Christ. 
the way has, made, has been made open. Then, verse 24, he talks about the course of his life. And it's all to give witness, verse 24, to this. And he starts off, he says, but I, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now think about that. Just pause there with me a moment. The course of his life, what is in view here is the life that he has had ever since he met Jesus Christ. He says, the course of my life, the arc of my life, the span of my life, it has one aim and one aim only, that my life in word and deed should give testimony, give proof, give credence to the good news of the gospel of God's grace. That's powerful. Grace. Verse 28. He calls the elders and he says to them, care for the church of God. Let me read it to you. Pay careful attention to yourselves and... By the way, don't miss that. Start with yourself. Oh, you're going to shepherd them? Make sure you're shepherding yourself first. Make sure you get it before you try to give it to them. Make sure you're living in this grace. He says, be careful... Pay careful attention to yourselves and to, the, to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. For what reason? To care for the church. It's literally shepherd the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know when we think of church, we can't, it takes a little work to get the idea of a building or a campus out of your mind. God did not go down to a garage sale and find a campus on sale and purchase it with his own blood. Here is a beautiful and powerful picture of the church. It is the people that he has won. The church is made up of people who have been touched by God because he has so valued each of them, and they realize it. He, in his grace, loves them so much, he has purchased purchased them with his life. Does that make sense? They're there. They're a part of the church. They're committed unto the Lord. They're following him because he has acquired, purchased, bought the church with his love, with his love, his his. Love demonstrated through Jesus Christ on the cross and his blood. That is a powerful concept. It's a powerful reality. It is God's grace. And then verse 32. He says, I commit you. Let me read it to you. 
And now I commend you to God. And to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. That is, the sanctified are those who are devoted unto the Lord. Distinctly devoted. It's, it's an Old Testament concept that I'm set apart unto you. I'm holy unto you. But here Paul says, you are committed, you are commended, you are pledged to God and the message or the gospel of his grace. Everywhere in Acts we've seen this use of the word where it refers to the gospel. And here again he says, you guys that are going to protect this flock. And in 30 and 31 he talked about vicious wolves who come from the outside or those who rise up from within you. And how are they going to destroy the church? How could the church be destroyed? Get your eyes, pull your eyes, take your eyes off of Jesus. And why would, how would that happen? Wouldn't it happen if they could get you to think that Jesus isn't the most important thing in your life as a believer? Or maybe tell you something that says you've got to do it this way or that way? Or you've got to jump through these hoops or those hoops? And what's going to protect you against that? There's only one thing I know that can protect you against that. And that would be keeping your eyes on the precious grace of God in Jesus Christ, knowing that that is at the heart of the church. That's what bought it. That's what sustains it. And that's why he commends those who shepherd it to God and the message of his grace. And that's why I think this whole chapter and what Paul is saying to the elders, maybe you can move it to the right slide for me, is saying to us, guard the grace of God with your life. Guard the grace of God with your life. Striking to me that uh, he comes as a servant. And he says that. He comes as a servant. And, and the picture that we have of Paul is very powerful. He's, he's a genuinely caring and loving man. He's personable and tender-hearted with everyone. It says Jew and Greek. From house to house and in public, he says. Admonishing them with tears. Listen, this is the way... In fact... If you read, for example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, you'll see that same picture of Paul. In fact, in verse 7, he says, uh, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. When you think about the nature of grace, how should it behave? I mean, if, if, if an elder is a protector of that grace... Or Paul is bringing that notion of grace. 
he's got to live it out. He's got to make it real. And everything I see Paul doing depicts that. He's so personable. House to house. He says, I lived among you. I lived among you. He's not a highfalutin CEO. He's not an actor or, or some kind of special personality who comes out from the backstage for his you know, moment in the light. He lives with these people. He's one of them. He cares for them. When he admonishes them, he admonishes them with tears. And why does he have to admonish them? That's the only tool we have, really, in the church. I'm, I don't have the power of a policeman. I don't have law behind me. In fact, the law isn't the tool of the gospel. It's love and it's grace. I can't call you into my office or then call you into contempt or throw you in jail or give you a ticket or make you pay a, a penalty. In fact, I have no power over you or in your life at all. It's all voluntary because it's all of grace. And so I admonish, which means I urge, I cajole, I make a fool out of myself up here. It kind of amazes me when I think back that I could ever stand up in front of people because I was so shy. So shy and insecure. But I am so motivated to tell you about things that have changed my life, the gospel of God's grace, that I just don't even let myself stand in the way. He doesn't even let the threat of those who are plotting against him get in the way of this humble service. And humility was despised in his day and age. Paul wasn't handsome. We know that from ancient accounts. He was nothing to look at. He didn't draw crowds because he was, had movie star looks. But he was beautiful because of the grace of God. He kept the course of grace. You can trust a God of grace. Faith isn't knowing what the future holds, but it's knowing Him who holds the future. And when God is a God of grace, Paul can trust Him through everything. Paul had a mindset that he considered his life was worth nothing to him. Don't get Paul wrong here. This doesn't mean that you have to consider yourself that your life is worth nothing in, in, in the sense of you have to despise yourself. Because of grace, Paul knows that he means everything to God. But he trusts the God who cares for him and loves him so much that he can trust his worries and woes to him. He can even trust the future that's so uncertain. I don't know, this, uh, I read about a guy who had lost his dog, and it, it just sticks in my mind. His dog only had three legs. It had a broken tail. It was missing half of the ear on the left side of his head. That's how you identify him. He offered a reward. He says he answers to Lucky. 
<laughs> but you know, he is lucky to have a master who loves a dog with three legs, a broken tail, and half an ear. And God loves you. I'm a three-legged dog with a broken tail and half an ear. And my wife knows that. God knows that about each and every one of us. But he doesn't focus on that. And we can trust a God who so loves us for all of our little seemingly, and by comparison, woes and troubles. And then Paul told him to care for the community of his, of his grace. And I just, I, I want to focus on, on these shepherds who are grace keepers. I, I think we're all to be grace keepers. Grace will always be here, you know, in the message of the gospel. But what keeps it alive? What keeps it out there? Who's going to guard it? If you were the only gospel that someone read, what would that gospel be? Would it be a gospel of law? Would it be a gospel of defeat and discouragement? Would it be a gospel of grace? And what would that gospel look like if it was a gospel of grace? Not just one with word, but our countenance, the environment of, of joy, generosity, the, the kind of grace that overlooks a fault, that doesn't bear a grudge, that's courteous and kind to others, that overlooks an offense, that keeps trying even though the person keeps frustrating. A person full of not just second chances, but third and fourth and fifth and sixth. And why? Why should a person be like that? Because God is like that with you and me. My name is Lucky. And yours is too. Listen to what he says about Paul. Uh, what Paul says, he says, when he talks about these grace keepers, the Holy Spirit placed you in this. You didn't earn it. Uh, the Pope didn't come down and appoint you. The Holy Spirit put you there. Take this seriously, he says to them. Watch out for yourselves and for the flock is another. That's in verse 20. He says you'd be committed to God and the message of his grace, another characteristic. He says, use the tools of admonition. Urge them with tears, in effect. Verse 31 and model grace, model grace. That's why Paul immediately after this, he says, did I covet, did I take, did I fleece the church, the flock, the people of their gold or their silver or their apparel? That's not the culture of grace. And he's saying to them, don't you do that either. That's what's characteristic of those wolves in 30 and 31. They want a following for themselves. Any authority that I have with you comes from my faithfulness to point you unto Jesus Christ and for me to follow Jesus Christ through thick and thin, 
through shame, whatever. To stay following Jesus Christ and say, you can follow me. I'm going to point us to Jesus Christ faithfully. That's what Paul is saying. Listen to what he wrote to the Ephesians. I'll just read it to you. This is in chapter 4. The last uh, verse, starting in verse 28, it goes right into verse uh, chapter 5. The one who steals must steal no longer. Rather, he must labor, doing good with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with the one who has need. That's grace. Verse 29, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only what is beneficial for the building up of one in need, that it may give grace to those who hear. Verse 30, and don't grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Put away every kind of bitterness, anger, wrath, quarreling, evil, slanderous talk. Instead, be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also forgave you. And then he says this, imitate God as dearly loved children and live in love just as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. That's grace. Paul got it. That's why he talks about grace so much. We get it. But guard it. Guard it, treasure it. Not as something that you put in a vault or that you brag about, but something that changes you, is reflected by your life, that savors who you are and how you deal with others. And then people will see the grace of God. Will you stand with me? As we close, I'm going to pray. I'd like you to just take 15 seconds, give you a chance in silence to just thank the Lord. Thank Him for His Son, Jesus Christ. Thank Him for His Spirit and His Spirit's work in your life. Thank Him for the people in your life. And thank and thank and thank. Because that's the way we see the grace of God in our lives. And when you see it, It'll change you. It'll touch you. It'll season you. I'll close in prayer. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Gracious Heavenly Father, You're so generous with us. Help us to ping off your grace with every person, with every situation that we might realize we have resources that are out of this world to love, to forgive, to care for, to be patient with, to be generous and sweet to others because that is the way you have treated us. May it transform our hearts, refreshing us today, encouraging us for this week, and guiding us as we guard it in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people said, God bless you.